After feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, Christ told his disciples to collect all that remained, that none be lost. Having fed the hungry multitude with physical bread, Christ also fed them the bread of life. His words were to be remembered, contemplated and shared, and no fragment of truth was to be left behind. I'm Laura. And I'm Bill, Laura's father. And this is Gathered Fragments. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament whom Abraham met and even paid tithes to. The question is, why is this king mentioned in the book of Hebrews in connection with the high priestly ministry of Christ in heaven? Who is Melchizedek? Thank you, Laura. Yes, certainly is a mysterious figure, Melchizedek. If it wasn't for the book of Hebrews, he only had that short account there in Genesis. Abraham returning from the slaughter of those five confederate kings who had sacked Sodom and Gomorrah, that we would never have heard of him. But the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, we believe the Apostle Paul, mentions him quite a bit in chapters 5, 6, and 7, as you said, in connection with Christ and his high priestly ministry. So are we going to start in the Old Testament or in the New? I think we can start in the New. We, we know the story in the Old Testament. Uh, as I said, it's only brief. Abraham's returning from the slaughter where he rescued Lot and his family and, and the other citizens. And as he's returning, freeing the captives, he's met by Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings to him bread and wine. That in itself is interesting. And Abraham pays him tithes. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And, and if anyone isn't aware, tithes is a 10% of your income. Yes. And so with that in mind, the next time you read about this person is toward the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 6, actually. It's the first time it's mentioned. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, and the apostle here is quoting from the 110th Psalm, where there's this oath made, a promise is made to Jesus that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now notice the context. Let's read verses 1 to 5 now and see what the context is regarding this order of Melchizedek. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you. So Paul, he's referring to Christ's high priestly ministry. In fact, in the previous chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 15, the apostle says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And therefore he admonishes us to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy, because there's a we have a high priest there, Jesus, 
who is touched with the feelings of our infirmity. And he continues this theme in the next verse where he says, Every high priest is taken from among men. This is why Christ, before he could be a high priest representing us, he had to be one of us. He too is taken from among men, just as the high priests of the tribe of Levi were, were called from among men. And just as a side note, if you want to learn more about Jesus' ministry as high priest in heaven, I encourage you to listen to episode 14, The Investigative Judgment, because we talk a lot about how there is a sanctuary in heaven Mm. and uh, Christ is working there as high priest, interceding on man's behalf. So that was episode 14. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Lloyd. Yeah, I remember that. Now, why did the high priest have to be taken from among men? Because he can have compassion on the ignorant Mm. and on them that are out of the way because he is also encompassed with the same. Exactly. So again, we see why Christ had to become one of us. He can have compassion on us as he represents us before the Father. He also was compassed with infirmity, being incarnate into this world with our the same fallen human nature that we have. Mm. Therefore, he can, as I read earlier, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities as he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So you have the, you have the perfect representative in heaven on our behalf, the perfect high priest. It's in this context that he then quotes this the oath that God swears in the 110th Psalm. Mm. There is a difference between Christ and a regular high priest because Mm. it says in verse 3, and by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Yep. And yet Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifice for sins for himself. Yeah, in fact, that episode you mentioned before, we, we saw that with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He would have to offer sins for himself and his whole household which was um, a bullock from memory. And then he was able to represent the whole nation of Israel before God. But like you said, that's rightly said that Jesus never had to bring a, a sin offering for himself. He never sinned. And he goes on to say, no man takes his honor upon himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. Aaron never volunteered and stepped forward. God called the tribe of Levi because of their faithfulness at Mount Sinai. And Aaron being the older brother of Moses, became the first high priest of Israel, and then his sons following with him. And then he adds, so Christ himself glorified not himself to be made a high priest. He was called of God. He said unto him, Thou art my son. Now he's quoting the second psalm. Second psalm, verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten. So it was the father who called Christ to this honor, to this calling as a high priest. He's both the sacrifice and the high priest. He's both. He's our sacrifice on the cross and he's our high priest representing his blood, not the blood of a lamb, but his blood before the Father, who is the judge. So we see that the name Melchizedek is in reference to Christ and his high priestly ministry. Why? Because the only high priestly ministry or priestly ministry we know of in the Old Testament, at least until things changed a little bit further down the track, but at least at the beginning, the way God set up, in fact, made a law, was called the Levitical law. The high priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Aaron first, then his sons following him, etc. If you were not from the tribe of Levi and also had to fulfill other conditions, you could not be a priest, let alone a high priest. This is just well, the biblical law. I acknowledge in the days of Christ things had changed. In fact, even before then, Caiaphas and these people were not from the tribe of Levi. But that's not how God had set things up originally. So was but, there a change in God's rules or had they uh, just... No, no, certainly not. We can trace it, I think it's somewhere after David's reign where these things, where it started to, to change. But nonetheless, the point is that God ordained that the priests would come from the tribe of Levi. Mm-hmm. They were faithful after the 
apostasy with the golden calf. When you remember Moses drew a line in the sand and he said who was on the Lord's side and the tribe of Levi came forward. Mm-hmm. And they, in fact, drew their swords and they had to slaughter the rebels who would not take a stand or would not uh, acknowledge their wrong mm. and got on to them that day by making them the, the tribe of the sanctuary. The high priest would come from there, the priest would come from there and they work in the sanctuary and those who would help erecting the sanctuary, etc., all from the tribe of Levi. And so that's important to remember because what Paul's talking about here now is a priestly ministry after the order of Melchizedek. That's what we wanted to find out why. What has the order of Melchizedek to do with Christ's high priestly ministry and why is it different to that of Levi? Meaning you're saying, why does it say he, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and not thou art a priest forever after the order of Levi? Exactly, exactly. We know that Melchizedek in Genesis is called the king of Salem. He's also called a priest. So we already know that much about him. Why is Paul now using this person and his name in reference to Christ's high priestly ministry and not the tribe of Levi? Mm-hmm. And this gives us a hint. Notice the next few verses, verses 6 to 10, after, just after he's, God's made that promise, or promise is quoted from the 110th Psalm. And notice verses um, 7 to 10. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a really important passage, this one, because verse 6, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, God says to him. And in verse 10 again, it says, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And those three verses in between tell us why. As we saw there, strong crying and tears in the days of his flesh. First of all, he had to be taken from among men. Verse 8, even though he was a son, the son of God, he had to learn obedience through what? Suffering. And especially verse 9. And Jesus being made perfect became the offer of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And then it says, call of God a high priest. So you see, the Levitical priesthood, we're going to see in a moment, made nothing perfect. The whole thing was a, I was going to say a failure, but a failure in the sense of that men just refused to be totally surrendered to God. Therefore, it was a type of Christ's priesthood, yes, but never a perfect type. It couldn't be because they were erring men, they were men who, fell who had to make had to offer for themselves of course there was lots of faults with the levitical priesthood in order to perfectly typify christ and of course it was going to come to an end the levitical priesthood this priesthood here we're reading about is continuing right now it continues on way after israel and judah and the ministry of christ on earth etc and to this day christ is our high priest in heaven after this order so it has to do with obedience and perfection, something that Levitical priests would fail to do. That's very important to understand. The very name Melchizedek, it's a Semitic word. Melchi means my king, and Melchizedek means my king of righteousness. That's what the name means. And we know that um, Christ, of course, is a king. And of course, as it says here, being made perfect, he suffered, being made perfect, he, he lived a righteous life. 
but we know also he is our priest now in heaven. So Christ fulfills perfectly the symbolism here regarding Melchizedek and in fact the very name what it refers to. When God says Melchizedek, he's talking to his son. He says, my king of righteousness. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. This is God speaking to his son. Look what he says, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Yeah, so there we see his anointing in the second psalm. God calls him my king. And also we see here that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. This is why he fulfilled the very meaning of that name. Melchizedek was a man. He certainly was a, he was a king of Salem, literally. And Where he was, was Salem? Salem is what today is called Jerusalem. Oh. Yeah, Salem became the capital that King David took with Joab, or Joab specifically his general, took. And there was a high point, uh, etc., a very strategic position. So he was like a, the king of Jerusalem, yes, in a right. sense. Yes, right. But at that time, was 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 inhabited by different people. Oh, okay. Yeah. What I'm getting at is just the name itself. You can see how it prefigures someone who would come and be a king of righteousness, who God calls my king of righteousness, and it's got to bring out perfection. And we can see why it fit. It's it's a fitting title for Jesus. Now this is where it gets interesting. Notice chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Again, this is what we were speaking about in Genesis before. This Melchizedek, king of Salem. And what was he? Priest of the Most High God. So he's a king. He was clearly a very righteous man. His very name means my king of righteousness. And he's a priest of the Most High God. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of those confederate kings, and he blessed Abraham. This is important. Notice what else his name means. Now the next verse is going to tell us. Verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Yeah. So he blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him one tenth or a tithe of all that he had received, and his very name means, by interpretation, King of Righteousness, as we saw, and after that also King of Salem, which means King of Peace. So none of this is told you in the Old Testament. All this is coming out in the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews now. But look what he says now. This is where it gets, for some people, very confusing, but it shouldn't be. Was Melchizedek a man? I mean, that sounds like a silly question. Well, Abraham met him. Yes, and he's a, he's a king. Of a literal place, King mm, of Salem. So he had to be a man. Yeah, but notice the next verse, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now we start to see that this literal figure that truly existed and with that name was what? A type, the Son of God who abideth a priest continually. So this is why the apostle is now connecting him with Jesus' ministry. Remember we saw, first of all, that it's an order of obedience and perfection. The Levitical priesthood failed. In fact, we're going to read that very soon. Failed to bring out in God's people. In fact, even in his priesthood, alone in his people. But this person, let's remember that the book of Hebrews is a very unique book. 
because it talks about a heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly. It compares the heavenly with the earthly. It tells you the earthly is only a pattern. It tells you that the earthly was to vanish away forever with the old covenant, and that Christ is ministering the true tabernacle, which tabernacle which God pitched and not man, and He's our high priest in that tabernacle. So, Book of Hebrews is extremely important when it comes to understanding the sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle that God pitched, and the work that Christ is doing in that sanctuary, which is not just working as a priest, but He's doing something very specific. He's cleansing the record of sin from that heavenly sanctuary. We did an entire study on Hebrews 9.28 where it says that Christ will return without sin unto salvation to all those who... So Christ was once offered Mm -hmm. to better sins of many and unto them that look to him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The reason he appears without sin unto salvation the second time is not because he has no sin on himself Jesus never had any sin on himself, but he bore the sins of the world. And to this day, he's bearing those sins in, in supplication, in, in covering them with his blood as he works as a high priest, as the, as the Levitical high priest did, especially on the Day of Atonement. That work will come to an end one day, because he's by cleansing the record of sin from the sanctuary, he has to cleanse it from the lives of those living. And when that work is complete, that's why he comes back without sin. That is the work of the of the Melchizedek priesthood. Very important. That's something that the Levitical priesthood could not do. But here we read, it says of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent. Now that would be bad enough. It goes on to say, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. Made like under the Son of God, abide of a priest continually. Now, Melchizedek was a man. In fact, notice the very next verse, just the first few words. Uh, verse 4, just the first line or so. Now consider how great this man was. Mm. Now that's important later, we'll see that. Paul's emphasizing how great this, this, he's going to show this man was much greater than Abraham, which is an amazing statement, very amazing statement to make. So he calls him a man. He clearly was a man. That means he had beginning of days, that means he had end of life. That means he had a mother mother and a father. father. The only man who's ever lived who didn't have a mother and father is Adam. It's the only one. And Melchizedek was many generations later than Adam, that's for sure. So why does the writer of Hebrews use these terms? Well, when we see the end of the verse, that made like unto the Son of God a priest that continually, these are terms to show that he's a type of Christ. And Christ's priesthood is a continual priesthood. And also, he's going to now compare Melchizedek's priesthood with that of Levi. See, it says, without descent. Yeah. Look at the margin. It says without pedigree. Now, pedigree means your heritage. Now, it doesn't mean without descent, like he didn't just he didn't have parents that he that you know he he didn't have heritage. He certainly did, but his pedigree or his descent was not from Levi. This is the point Paul's going. To, we're going to see it now clearly in the next few verses. That's the point that the apostles bringing out here. Melchizedek had nothing to do with Levi. It's a new order of priesthood. In fact, it's well before Levi. Mm. You know, there's Jewish sources that say if a man could not prove his pedigree or his descent from Levi, he could not be a priest, which of course was true. Old Testament brings this out. That's, That's what the Levitical law was. And if they couldn't, those examining the case or that person's claims would say you're without mother, without father. They weren't saying that you didn't have parents. They were saying, as far as the Levitical line is concerned, mm-hmm. you cannot prove it. You're without heritage. You're without pedigree. Mm-hmm. You're without a descent from this line. You're given no evidence for it. Therefore, you're excluded. 
This, yeah. is, the, this is the point he's bringing out here. They were terms that they would use. That's interesting. Absolutely, yes, exactly. Because we've established he's a man. He clearly had mother and father. The only person that had mother and father was Adam, and Melchizedek came well after Adam. And he couldn't be a priest of the Most High God if he was not a man, because the Bible, we, we started our study in Hebrews 5.1, every high priest is taken from among men. Even Jesus, before he could be our high priest, had to be born into the human mm, family. That's right. So it couldn't be an angel. No, 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 no. No, certainly not. The only one who has ever lived who is without father is actually God. Even Jesus has a father. In fact, that was our study not long ago, uh, our previous study, John 1.1. 1, 1. So even Christ is excluded from that as far as not having a parent. With that in mind, let's read verse 4 again. Consider how great this man was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. We know how great Abraham was to the Jews. I mean, in Jesus' day. Our fathers Abraham, they, they Isaac, called, yeah, and Jacob. Abraham say, was the first. They would say our father Abraham. They, mm. you know, nobody dreamed to say anything negative regarding Abraham. That is the father of, of Israel. Well, Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob, and one of Jacob's sons is Levi. So that makes Levi the great-grandson of Abraham. So when Abraham meets Melchizedek and gives him, pays him tithe and is blessed by him, his great-grandson, Levi, is still three generations away from being born. Mm. It's important to understand. But look at verse 5 now, same chapter 7. And verily... They that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people Hmm. according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Again, this is the Levitical law. The Levites did not have a portion in Israel, except for some lands, uh, if we want to get really specific, but nonetheless, they didn't have a portion like the other 12 tribes, 11 tribes. And the reason is, was they would dedicate themselves fully to the work of the sanctuary and the priesthood. But God gave them the tithe so that they could live and support their families, which was the right, of course, the just thing to do. In fact, even a minister today is supported by the tithe in order to be able to, his family can be cared for and he can do the Lord's work. And so it says here, they were all the sons of Levi, in other words, the priesthood, had the command from God to receive tithes, to take tithes from the people. Mm-hmm. And it says they come out of the loins of Abraham in that sense, as I said earlier, Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham. Now notice the next verse now, talking about Melchizedek again. But he whose descent is not counted from them mm. received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Abraham was the one that received the promises from God. What he's bringing out here, remember he said, now consider how great this man was. Mm. Now he talks about the Levites they had the commandment to support them to receive tithe, and they came out of Abraham. And then he says, but he, Melchizedek, whose descent is not counted from Levi, he received tithe from Abraham, and he blessed Abraham. He is much greater than Abraham and greater than any Levite. So tithes were actually already a thing. Certainly was. Certainly, otherwise, why would Abraham pay them? Hmm. And now look at verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Hmm. So again, he's proving his point. Consider how great this man was, this king of righteousness, this king of Salem, this king of peace, this one who's made after the Son of God that abided for priest forever. He blessed Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. And Levi was still in Abraham's loins. He was still to be born quite a few generations later. 
and he calls Abraham the lesser of the two. Certainly he's the lesser of the two. He who is blessed is, is lesser than the one who, who's blessing. Absolutely. Mm. And Ab- Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's a king. Jesus is a king. Melchizedek was a priest. Christ is our great high priest. Melchizedek was a righteous man, and Christ is the king of righteousness. So the Melchizedek priesthood is a much greater priesthood than that of Levi, or the Levitical priesthood. Look at the next two verses now, verses 9 and 10. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in hmm. Abraham. That's, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. He's still in the loins. He's still Levi born. He's there, so you could say genetically in a sense. But he who received tithes, in other words, through the Levitical law, of course, in years to come, the apostle saying he, he actually paid tithes in Abraham. Do yeah. Melchizedek. He's saying like paid honor as well. Absolutely, yeah. And verse 10. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Yeah. So this is the point that uh, over and over again he's bringing he's, what he What he's doing here, he's going to uplift and honor Christ's priesthood in heaven. How much greater it is than any Levitical temporal priesthood. And this is the only man you can find in the Old Testament that he can use. In fact, that God had ordained. Because God says to Jesus, he swears to him the hundred times some, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he inspired the Apostle Paul and no one else, none of the gospel writers, no one else but the Apostle Paul to be able to make this connection and show what God meant by that. But I guess before the tabernacle, before there was the Levitical service, what did the high priest do? Was there a high priest? He's called the priest of the Most High God. We also know that Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest. And he was from the Midianites, from memory. That's right. Jephro is called a priest of Midian. So yes, God had his priests well before Israel was even born as a nation, as we see there with Abraham. So they would have been conducting some kind of service? Or... Well, there were the, of course, the sacrificial service, that goes right back to the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. the very first sacrifice. And that, that sacrificial service continued all the way from the Gate of Eden to the cross. And there was no sanctuary service for a long time until the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and brought to Mount Sinai, etc. Before then, you had the sacrificial service, you had the everlasting gospel that was given from father to son, and there was also a priesthood, not so much as a, a nation of called people, but whether in towns or in certain, like we said, Jephro, priest of Midian, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. Like in this sense, he was a king and a priest, but a priest was also a judge. He was also a teacher. The vertical priests were judges of Israel. They had to judge matters and judge them. They were expected to judge them righteously and honestly. They had to lead the people, and of course they would intercede for the people before God. They were very, the most important people. And as, as no doubt, as populations began to grow, there was more and more need for men to call of God in this work. Not just the family, it's the family altar itself, but there would have been a representation there. I can't be more specific than that, but the Bible clearly speaks, speaks about priests well before the, the Levitical priesthood was chosen, and this is what this study is all about. Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, the King of Salem. With that in mind, what is the point, what is the actual point of comparing Christ's priesthood, which is after the order of Melchizedek, and how much greater Melchizedek was than Abraham, and therefore how much greater was Melchizedek than Levi and the Levitical priesthood, the very next verse gives us the answer. One of the most important verses in all the book of Hebrews, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Very important questions that are asked here. Now remember, what God wanted all along, what God desired all along was not rivers of blood and sacrifices. He wanted obedience. That's what God wanted. From the heart. Yeah, he disdained the sacrifices and all those things. That was supposed to keep them from sinning. But as we've seen in the past, it turned into a salvation by works, and they thought that they could just sin and slaughter an animal. Yeah, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite Contrite heart. The question Paul's asking here is, if the Levitical priest would have done its job, which was bring obedience, perfection from the people, there's no need for an order of Melchizedek. There's no need for another order, not the order of Aaron. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that one failed, and God knew it all along, of course. And that's why all along, before this priesthood even was ordained, God had a man in the Old Testament who met Abraham, who blessed Abraham, who brought him bread and wine and blessed him and received from him tithe, whose name was, meant, my king of righteousness. And it was going to be a type of the true king of righteousness who would represent God's people in heaven and who would bring perfection. This is the whole point. And therefore... It goes on to say, verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. This is important because what he's saying now is, even the Hebrew Christian at this point would have struggled in accepting that what God had pronounced at Mount Sinai was to be overridden or done away with. It would have been difficult for them, the whole old covenant, the whole thing. In fact, that's why the book of Hebrews is written. Somewhere around 65 AD, it was AD 70, that temple's going to be destroyed and turned to ashes by Titus and the Roman legions. And there'd be nowhere to look anymore in Jerusalem for a temple or anything. They had to look up to heaven where the true high priest was in the true sanctuary. And the timing of this book is, is crucial. But the point he's bringing out here is there had to be of necessity a change also to the law. The change to the law he's talking about there is a change to the Levitical law, the Levitical priesthood, the law that they had commanded that the priest would come from the tribe of Levi and that Levitical priest would represent God's people. That had to be changed, and it was changed. And the reason it's changed is because perfection was not under the Levitical priesthood. It, could never, it never could be. It never was and never could be. So it was always only a type of the priesthood of Christ. It was only a type, never anything more than that. All along, it was prefiguring a greater priesthood, and again, that's why Paul is bringing out that Melchizedek was much greater than Levi, much greater than Abraham and represented the ideal that God wanted all along for the priesthood to be. Why change the law? Notice again verse 13 and 14. It says it even more. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Mm. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Mm. That's the law, of the Levitical law I'm talking about, the law of Moses, that the priest had to come from Levi. But here he says, For he of whom these things, which is Jesus, pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attention to the altar. In other words, no one from Judah ever was a priest mm. at that time. And then he says, It is evident that our Lord, Jesus, he came, of course, from Mount of Judah, the tri- lion of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So again, Paul is, he's already mentioned Christ as our high priest a number of times up to this point, a number of times in the book of Hebrews. Yeah, that's established. Yeah. But the people say, Hang on, remember, he came from Judah. You know, yeah. Moses' command had to come from Levi. That's why he starts talking about Melchizedek. He starts showing how he's greater than Abraham, and Levi's still in the t- loins of Abraham, and Levi actually, through Abraham, paid tithe to Melchizedek, etc. 
Mm-hmm. This is the argument he's, he's bringing up. And uh, this showing of necessity there had to be a change to the law because Jesus came from Judah. He did not come from Levi. And he says in verse 15, And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Absolutely, yes. And even verse 16, Who is not made after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Now, this is a strong language. Carnal commandment. This is the commandment of God given to Moses. And of course, a carnal. And incidentally, because we have this understanding that carnal is something that is fleshly and weak and even immoral. Not necessarily. That word carnal can simply mean temporal, weak and temporal. In the Levitical priesthood, the law was certainly weak, it was certainly temporal. And that's what he says, saying here. Not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. That's why God swore an oath, thou shalt be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he said, look, says it again, verse 17, for he testified, this is the third time he calls God as witness, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's why, look at verse 18 now, the disannulling. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. And why is it disannulled? Why is it weak and unprofitable? Again, verse 19, he says it a second time. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, mm. by the which we draw nigh unto God. So this is the whole point of the Christ's high priestly ministry, not being after Levi. It was weak, it was carnal, it was temporal. It could not make anything perfect. It was disannulled, along with the whole entire old covenant. But all along, from the beginning, even before that even existed, when Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, God had a better plan, and he had it all along. And it, incidentally, it succeeded all along. Not in a, a number of people, but we, we know Enoch, the Bible says he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The interesting thing is, Paul could just be saying that, yes, Jesus came from a different order. He came from the tribe of Judah. But why does that go back to Melchizedek? There's two things he's trying to bring out is. First of all, he needs the Christians to understand. Remember, this book is called the Book of Hebrews. It's very important. It's addressed to Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, the Hebrews. And the first thing he wants to bring out is, forget this sanctuary. Remember what Jesus said? Remember when it says that they showed him the temple, the disciples? Mm. Look at what reverence they regarded that place. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left upon another, it shall not be torn down. Even though they become Christians, even though they, they had a lot of light, the sanctuary, the great temple, and, that, and their entire history was such a powerful hold on them. And that's going to be destroyed. They had to take their eyes away from that, otherwise their faith will crumble. That's why he says not one stone will be left upon another. And they had to look where the true sanctuary was, which the whole thing prefigured. It's the same with the, the priesthood's the same. They had to forget about looking to man as a priest and look to Christ, who's a true high priest. So... The reason he brings out Melchizedek is because his very name and the fact that he was greater than Abraham, greater. Abraham's the father of Israel. Mm-hmm. This man's greater. He wants to take their eyes off the temporal, even their, their past history, even as beautiful as it was, to where Christ was ministering for them. And most importantly, above anything else, what we're seeing now a number of times is that that old covenant and that priesthood was weak, it was temporal, and it could not perfect the worshiper. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. Yeah. It could not stop them from sinning. Yes, the fault was with the people, but nonetheless it was faulty. It was only yeah, the prefiguring. F- the fault wasn't with what God had designed. No, no. And we have another episode on this called, I think, The Two Covenants, and we, mm. we go into this quite deeply. But. Yeah, well, Christ lived under that covenant and he didn't sin. And that's what God had desired. But the point is that the whole of the whole Jewish tradition had to be dismantled. That's what the book of Hebrews does, incidentally. 
it dismantles Judaism bit by bit, dismantles it all, and shows you where you should be looking, both Jew and Gentile. Yeah, looking, I guess, out beyond. Beyond, well beyond. Those mm. were only types and symbols, object lessons. Notice, look at verse 22. Oh, let's read verse 21 and 22 together. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Mm. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of, of a, a better, better testament. Of a better testament, so you have a better covenant. This is the whole point. God swore, and when God swears, God who cannot lie, not only did he swear, he will not repent. He says to his son, you are a priest forever. Not like Levi, that they would live and they would die and they would fail. You're a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the order of king of righteousness, by so much was Jesus made a surety, a guarantee of a better testament. This is the point. This is why we're called New Testament Christians. That's why we look to Christ as our true high priest, etc. And incidentally, we can believe all that, but that whole thing can just be a cliche if we don't believe it can keep us from sinning or perfect a worshiper. This is the whole. This, remember verse 11? What's the point of asking this question? If perfection were under or by the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there be for another priesthood that should arise after the order of Melchizedek? Yeah. If that had done its job, you don't, you don't need to change it. You don't need to disannul the law. You don't need to bring in another priesthood. Doesn't that mean then that if God disannuls the law, if he brings in a better priesthood, doesn't that mean then that the perfection he requires will be successful under that priesthood? Otherwise, he has the same problem with the first one. What's the point of having another priesthood under the order of Melchizedek if that one's going to fail like the Levitical one did? You haven't achieved anything with me? This is the yeah. point he's making. If he changed it, he changed it because this one is going to bring about what God desired all along. Because mm-hmm. he's a priest that abided forever. He doesn't have to live and die and pass it on to his son, etc. He's interceding before us with his blood, better sacrifice and a better priesthood and a better testament and a better sanctuary. And that's why Melchizedek all along, it's true up until Paul wrote this, even the Hebrews, even the Hebrew Christians probably never really understood, not, not probably, they never understood enough about Melchizedek. Sure, they understood a little bit. Look, for example, watch this. Come back to chapter 5. Let's read 10 and 11 together. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. You see, there was a lot to understand about this, a lot more that Paul doesn't even, even go there. Go there. But this was not just some single little interesting story about some man who meets Abraham and receives some tithe and that's it. That's what anyone would have thought up until this was written in the book of Hebrews. And now the apostle starts connecting it with Christ. This is the first time you read anywhere, in any place you read anywhere, where Christ is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is important. But that literal story in Genesis, you know, you'd think it would be interesting, but you wouldn't think any more of it. That's why he says, of which we have many more things to say, but you were hard and dull to hear. But the point he brings out is, he was much greater than Abraham. He blessed him who was the lesser. He received tithes from him. He received honor from him. And Abraham's the father of Israel. Levi was still in his loins. And perfection is through this priesthood, which the Levitical priesthood could not bring. And this is why he says that Christ is a priest of the New Testament, of a better testament. And of course, three or four times at this point, he is quoted where God the Father has sworn to his son, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So 
was starting to see what God meant by that story and, and by this King of Salem. How it was really wonderful lessons to teach us about the work that Christ is doing in heaven now. But the most important thing to learn through all of this is simply that while Christ is ministering in, in heaven now on our behalf as our high priest, the work he's doing there is to impart that victorious life to us that we can overcome sin. Otherwise, you might as well live under the Levitical priesthood because there is no difference. There is no difference. Mm. The fact that there is a difference means that it will also accomplish that difference in those who believe and are willing. Otherwise, there was no need to change the law. If, there, if it's not going to make any difference, no need to change the law. Yeah. He's able to save them to the uttermost. He ever liveth to make a decision for them. That's why it says, without beginning of days, without end of life, he's a type of Christ. This sounds going to sound a little bit tricky, but think about it. It's important. We know his very name, my King of Righteousness, is a symbol of Christ and his ministry and his life of righteousness and also as a king. And it says, with our father and mother, and we saw that that meant without his pedigree through Levi. He was quite a few generations before Levi, and without beginning and end of days. But Melchizedek certainly had a mother and father, and he certainly lived and died. Now, if the Bible tells you any more about Melchizedek, as far as his humanity is concerned, it's going to destroy him as a type as well. Even though he was a king, even though he was a righteous man, even though he was greater than Abraham. He doesn't want to tell you too much more about him as far as his humanity is concerned but about what his name means and about the office he had as priest and king, etc. Mm, I was it's just thinking it's interesting point. that there's not much more. Yeah, no, that's very important. You're going mm. to start seeing he was a man. You're going to start seeing he had a mother and father. Of course he did. And you're going to see that he lived and he died. And there goes the type, typology. So the apostle says enough to keep that connection, to show that there had to be a change in the law and that that change in the law is going to bring about a priesthood that's going to, those who cooperate with that, and to keep them from sinning. And... and, and accomplish what the Levitical priest would fail to do. And that's why we have those types. And when I, the verse I just read, for example, notice, look at verse 24, chapter 7, read 23 and 24. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And that's why it says on Melchizedek, without beginning of days or end of life, because it's a type of Christ, an unchangeable priesthood, it wasn't like Levi, Aaron would die and pass it on to his son, and then he would die and pass it on to his son, etc. It continues. And that's why he's able to save them to the uttermost, for he ever liveth to make an intercession. And then, of course, verse 26, undefiled, separate from sinners, made high in the heavens. Let's just finish with verse 28, important one. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath mm. which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yes, the law came by Moses. It came at Mount Sinai. The law which uh, made the tribe of Levi the priest for the people. And of course, they had to offer up sacrifice for themselves and for, the, for their sins and the sins of the people. They would live and they would die. And these are all the contrasts with Christ's priesthood. It says, yes, he did once when he offered up himself. He only, only had to offer up himself once or one, one sacrifice. The law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, that's the promise of the Father, which he swore, which was since the law or after the law, maketh the Son, which is consecrated forevermore. So one, one promise, one sacrifice is enough until this work is over. And that work as high priest will be completed. Incidentally, that work won't continue for eternity. That work continues until, let's read Hebrews 9.28 once more. This is when that work ends. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, 
and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And that is the culmination of the Melchizedek priesthood. He appears a second time without sin, because that sin will be blotted out of the books of record, and to be blotted out of the books of record, it had to be blotted out of the life of those living at the end of time. And so perfection will be under this priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. That righteousness is fulfilled in his life, will be fulfilled in those whose life is lived out in on earth. And so he'll be coming back without sin unto salvation. So who was Melchizedek? Who was he? That's all the apostle tells us. I believe, uh, not only I, but uh, many, many, there's uh, Jewish tradition, believe very strongly who it was. So do many scholars today believe who it was. And so do I. It had to be an incredibly great man. It had to be someone who was much greater than Abraham, and that in itself is hard to believe. And, of course, was somebody who, no doubt, was a true human being who lived and died, of course. The only one I believe can fulfill that is the son of Noah called Shem. The reason we say that is because, as far as we know, he is by far the most lived human being after the flood in the Old Testament, by far, as far as the recording goes. In Genesis 11, verse 10, it says he's 100 years old when he has Afaxad. He lives 600 years in total. He lives another 500 years after the flood, Shem. No man lived anywhere near that after the flood. Abraham lived 175 years, and that was quite a long life. This man lived 500 years after the flood. And when you do the, ge the genealogy, you'll find that they were contemporaries, Shem and Abraham. Certainly, was, in fact, if you really study it carefully, you'll find that Shem probably outlived Abraham by at least 30 years, at least. Again, that's, we could go into that, but not necessary. So the point I'm making is, and the apostle says, consider how great this man was. Shem goes back to the, forget the flood, he goes back to the Garden of Eden, or to the gates of the Garden of Eden. He would have seen the, the cherubim with flaming swords at the gate because that was not taken up until the flood. Oh. That remained there. There was no atheists in, in, before the flood. Mm. Yes, they were rebels. Yes, they didn't want to follow God, but they believed it. I mean, the angels were there. They could see them. The, the garden was there. They weren't allowed in, but they could see it. Uh, amazing, that is. So Shem takes that knowledge after the flood, and he lives another 500 years. To Abraham's days. To Abraham's day. No wonder when Abraham saw this man, you think Abraham didn't know who he was. He certainly did. Mm. And when he sees this man, he pays him tithe and is blessed by him. A wonderful story. There's more. There's quite a bit more regarding that as well, regarding Shem, etc. But again, it's only tradition, so we cannot verify. Even this, we can't verify fully, but I can't think of another Bible character that could come anywhere close to Shem's greatness after the flood that would be greater than Abraham. And what about the other sons of Noah? Did they live long after the well, flood? Well, Ham and Japheth, we, I'm not sure that their ages are, are, are given, but we know, we know Shem's is clearly given. He lived 600 years, but 100 years was before the flood, so that much we know for certain. But we also know that Ham wasn't as faithful anyway. In fact, yeah. to a great degree, his life was cursed even. Not because God punished him so much, but God foresaw that. And Japheth, of course, being the father of the, the Gentile race, but... Um, Shem, we know. Shem is the father of the Semitic people. He's the father of the Hebrews. Abraham and his father, Terah, etc., come through the line of Shem. So this man's actually a very close relative to Abraham. Although going back a few generations, no doubt, but nonetheless, he is his lineage. Lineage, yeah. So that's why many believe Melchizedek was, was Shem. But all along, he was, uh, his very name and his office and priesthood 
and his life was one that was prefiguring Christ to come. It's beautiful it come how from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is ministering for us today. Mm. And um, that doesn't, like you're saying, it doesn't go back to Levi. It's bigger mm. than that. Mm. And that's, it's kind of like similar. Was, that's right. He was interceding for Adam from the very beginning. The moment they shed that blood, that first lamb. In fact, it says that God made, made skins for them, remember? Mm. And it, it's, the of Eden. it's kind of like when people think, oh, the Sabbath is a Jewish thing. Mm. It's like, hang on, the Sabbath goes back to creation week. Absolutely. It's much bigger so, than absolutely. that. And just like- There was no if, Jew in Adam's day. Yeah. In fact, if you want to get really technical, not technical, but, but accurate, even in Israel's day, there's no Jews. Jews is a term that started to originate from the dividing of the kingdom. It was known as Israel, or known as Jacob even, but in Israel, not Jews. The Jews is a term you read in the New Testament in Christ's day, but you can take it probably back no further than when God divided the kingdom after Solomon and his son Rehoboam ruled Judah and Benjamin, and that's where you start to getting the term Jews, Judah and Benjamin. Before that, it was 12 tribes and the nation was called Israel. Never. You don't read about Jew or Jews before then. Mm. In fact, even then, I'm not sure if you read about it. But even so, like beyond the Hebrew nation, I'm, I'm saying like the Sabbath was in yeah, creation week. Absolutely. And so in a similar sense, the high priestly role. Yeah. Well, Noah would have been the priest of his household. Of course he was. Yeah. You know, he would have offered the sacrifices. He would have offered the prayers on behalf of his family. You know, and as these things grew, there would have been a priest who would have represented more people than that even. But that's how it began. There was no priesthood. There was no tribe. Hmm. The 12 tribes began with Jacob's 12 sons after they came out of Egypt. Maybe even before, but nonetheless, it was really after when we read. And this is kind of how you see that everlasting covenant, how Absolutely. it was still present. Like the, oh, new, of the was. new covenant was present in the Old Testament. It supersedes the Old. Yeah. It supersedes it by a long way. The new covenant is the everlasting covenant. It's called new because it was ratified at the cross. But that's, what the, that's the covenant that Christ proclaimed at, at, um, in Genesis. And so that's the only reason it's called new. That's when it was ratified and, and people started to understand it. But men, are, men and women are, are saved by the, the blood of the Lamb from the very beginning, before Mount Sinai, before, before the Levitical priesthood was appointed or anything like that. You know, we're told that the bleeding victim on the altar of, sac- altar of sacrifice testified of the Redeemer to come, and that was the... As I said, the father was the priest of the home and he would offer that sacrifice on behalf of himself and his family. And this went on for thousands of years before there was a sanctuary or a, a Levitical priest. And as we saw in Melchizedek's day, or in, if we believe it to be Shem, or even if it wasn't, nonetheless, it still supersedes by, by many generations, Mount Sinai. Remember, as I was saying before, Jacob entered into Egypt with his 12 sons and the Bible says there were approximately 70 people. His sons, their wives, and their children. Approximately 70 people. At the Exodus, hundreds of years later, numbers differ by different historians, but it's anyway between one and two million people came out. A million for sure, minimum, came out of Egypt. So you can see why Pharaoh was getting concerned and wanted to kill all the firstborn sons, etc. All mm. the sons. God was really blessing that, those people. But Isaiah, I think it's 44 verse 2 from memory, it says, God says, I have formed thee from the womb. And he did. He formed Israel from the womb. He, he, he chose a man called Abraham, gave him a promise, renewed that promise with Isaac and then with Jacob, and then he birthed this nation. They didn't exist before then. 
It's not like Assyria. It's not like Egypt. These are way older nations than, than Israel, way older. God created this nation from nothing. He created it from a man. That's a reality. But his priesthood and his everlasting covenant supersedes that. And any Jew or any, Israel, any Hebrew, as I said, goes right back to Adam. And Shem goes back to that gener- those generations there before the flood, and he takes that knowledge across the flood. Incredible. Mm. No wonder Abraham uh, met him and paid him tithes and all. And wonderful. Yeah. It's an interesting lesson, and I think there's a lot more to be learned from that, but I think the principal, principal lesson is simply that it's a greater priesthood, far superior in every way, but particularly in the fact that perfection was not under Levitical priesthood, therefore the law had to be disannulled and a greater priesthood after a different order had to be called and God had swore that oath to his son. And it was after the order of Melchizedek, my king of righteousness, and that righteousness will be fulfilled in those who cooperate with that high priest in heaven, and then he'll be coming back without sin under salvation to all those who look to him. So that's what the lesson is for us, to look to that high priest in heaven. Mm, who is there interceding yes. before the Father with mm. his blood mm. for us. Yeah, the blood of a perfect sacrifice, a perfect life. And he has an unchangeable and endless, an endless uh, priesthood that we can cooperate with. Imagine, for example, if you're an, uh, you know, an Israelite and even Christ's day or Jeremiah's day or Isaiah's day or any time. And for example, look at Jeremiah's day. They were corrupt. They were totally corrupt, the priesthood. Jeremiah was a, was a priest. His whole family, his own family despised him. What confidence could you have in that priest supposedly interceding on your behalf? How could you have any confidence in him? They were corrupt, half of them, if not more. I mean, God laid some of them, some of them, God, God you know, look at Hopni and Phineas, uh, Eli's sons. Hmm. You know, destroyed in battle. Uh, Aaron's two sons, fire from heaven destroyed them. You know, there was corruption, etc. So how can a person have any, how can you have faith in your pastor today to any great degree? This is the point. We have to take our eyes from that to the true minister, the true shepherd, the true priest in heaven who has that perfect and unchangeable and endless life. And that's what Melchizedek was, was prefiguring. And you can see why God would choose Shem not only because of his going back to, you know, not going back to that holy line, all the way back to Seth and Adam, etc., but that he prefigures even someone like Abraham, and he's bringing knowledge all the way back from before the flood. Talk about not having a beginning of days or end of life, etc. You can see why God would choose someone like him to, to be that perfect figure of Christ's priesthood. I mean, they had the gospel in its purity. Imagine, they got it. They, they didn't get kind it from, of, It's kind of like a bridge. And, yeah, that's know. right. They didn't get it from books. They got it from the mouth of Adam. Mm. Adam got it straight from Jesus. And wonderful. Imagine that. That man's to still be alive and still walking the earth and Abraham speaking with him. Yeah. That's probably another, an, um, another comparison too, mm. that if it is Shem, you know, he bridged that period yes. before yes. and after the flood. And we know that Christ is described as the ladder which bridges yeah. between God and earth. Absolutely. Yeah, good point. God and man. So. Yeah. And he's also a living testimony that God would save his people because Shem would be a living testimony to him and his family, those who crossed over the flood. Imagine living through that, incidentally. I mean, the, oh, great, yeah. the greatest event that ever shook the earth. And how drastically different oh, the world would wow, have looked. Wow, wow. Amazing, amazing. And to be delivered from that, what a living testimony you are that God has, has preserved for himself a people, for a knowledge of him to be continued on. Mm. 
you know, when we read that God called Abraham from Ur to Chaldees and called him to come out, and we just read that he, you know, he came, he left. And yes, all that's true. He was a man of faith. He sojourned where God led him. But there's no, there's no more detail. How do we know that he didn't talk with Shem? No, no, no doubt he would have talked with Shem. No doubt Shem would have confirmed those words as well. Again, I'm, I'm speculating, but these are things that are left out of the Bible. But, the, but you, can, you can join these pieces together. He's alive in Abraham's day. He has yeah. If he's alive, Abraham's going to want to speak with he's him. Gonna, he's, of course, he's, he's a relative, first of all. He knows him. And, and this is why the knowledge of God was still alive, incidentally, in a place, place like the Chaldees. You know, the places like that, which was were becoming rank apostasy. His own father, Terah, was falling into apostasy and idolatry. And this is why God was calling him out of there. Incredible. Calling mm. him out of Babylon. And so you can see that remnant that remained. And how did it remain? Because Noah's sons, especially Shem and Japheth, brought that knowledge from before the flood, kept it alive, and it was passed on. Mm. Consider yeah. how great this man was, Apostle says. How true that is. We pray that you gained something from this episode. And like I said before, if you have more questions on this topic, I do encourage you to have a listen to our earlier episodes on the investigative judgment, the sanctuary in heaven, and also the two covenants where we deal with these topics Mm. in more detail as well. So thank you for listening and God bless. God bless.